Radio Mano Papachango. Hey, Chris, I just did a big hike in Salt Lake City, Utah, listened to a bunch of your stuff that's been on the queue for a while and wanted to thank you for all the intimacy that you do share. And when I listened to your intros from your mom and from your sister, that was what really impressed me. Like, of course, they are great interviews and they are great people, as are all of your podcasts. But the things that you said surrounding that were so beautiful and so special. And you are right. Putting your heart out on media is risky. And it made so much sense when you said that you hadn't wanted to do that to the people in your life. Because when you do it for yourself, you choose to take the risk. But when you bring somebody else into it and you interview them and they're a person that you love and you make a space that feels safe, that makes them talk you have to navigate the risk for them because they didn't choose to have a life in media like you did. So I just wanted to commend that and thank you again for all the things that you've said recently on the intros. It's uh, such a tough world right now and you, you remind a lot of people that we're not alone. Thank you for that, Lori. That, uh, that's very kind of you to say it is a constant struggle between my sort of innate shamelessness and uh, perceived responsibility to be as transparent as I possibly can with people like yourself or anyone who's listening to this uh, who trust me with their attention. And and I do mean that. I, there's so many things trying to get your attention uh, right now. We live in an attention economy. Your attention is the most valuable thing, not only to you, but to anyone who's trying to uh, harness that attention in order to monetize it so they can sell you shit or they can sell ads, um, which is, you know, what makes the world go round at the moment. Uh, you know, we've got a super spreader in chief who's only discernible skill is attracting and holding attention. Um, And so, you know, the fact that thousands of people decide on a weekly basis to give me an hour or two of their time and attention is something I take very seriously. And I guess I feel a responsibility to be as transparent and honest with you as I possibly can. And uh, that runs into stickiness when it involves other people, uh, especially uh, people that I'm very close to and, uh, uh, you know, for whom I feel very protective. So thank you for understanding that. And, you know, I after doing those episodes with my mom and my sister, we got so much really great feedback. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the last episode, people sent money to my sister's donation stepping or her foundation or nonprofit stepping forward la uh, dot org um you know 
some people sent 50 bucks, 20 bucks. One person sent a thousand dollars, um, to help out. Um, and you know, I can assure you there are no financial shenanigans. She spends every cent that is donated on helping these young adults who are aging out of foster care and really, uh, don't have any other form of support in their lives. And, um, she also spends her own money uh, on, you know, legal bills and she shows up in court. She she just does amazing work. And um, anyway, as I was saying, I uh, after airing the episode with my mother and my sister, we got so much great feedback um, that it made me feel like maybe I had been overly cautious. And uh, it also made me think about how much of a struggle it was not to have my dad on the podcast. You know, the first few years of the podcast, I just shied away from having anyone in my personal life come on. Uh, I guess I just didn't feel comfortable enough with the format and and with the audience. And I I didn't really know what kind of relationship I was having and with whom. And, um, you know, then as it went on, I've been doing this seven years now, probably. And uh, the, you know, just seeing the caliber of the people who listen to this and the kindness and generosity and uh, patience and, uh, um, just the, the, f- how awesome you people are and how you interact with each other. I've, I've mentioned several times how even Reddit, you know, which is kind of an online cesspool for trolls and shitheads. Um, even on Reddit, I see these conversations on the tangentially speaking subreddit where someone will say something and someone gets pissed off and then they go back and forth a few times and then it's like, oh, gee, I was having a bad day. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have put it that way. And yeah, I understand things, you know, online get and they're just like, Jesus, I wish the whole world worked this way. You know, this is such a fucking awesome community. And once I really started to get a sense of that. Um, my dad's health was declining to the point where I felt so protective of him, not just in, in the sense of, you know, having a private person come into a public place that they're not familiar with, but also, you know, he wasn't as sharp as he had been and he was feeling tired and diminished and, um, I know he would have done it if I'd asked him, but I think I would have been just so um, heartbroken that I couldn't bring him as I remembered him to you and into this community. I never did. And he continued declining. And um, so anyway, I'm just glad I, I had my mom and my sister on, even if they both said that my entire family thought that I was gay, strangely. Um, so I'm in Colorado. I don't know if you can hear this, but I'm talking to you from my much preferred home microphone, uh, sitting at a table, looking out a window at beautiful mountain range. Uh, I woke up this morning. I was having coffee. The sun was shining on the window. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw a photo I posted of what appears to be a 
bare paw print on the living room window. Interesting. Uh, so definitely out in the country and uh, going to be here for at least a few months. Going to ride out the this fucking superstorm that's heading our way, this political superstorm. I'm not going to talk about that much. I'm going to be doing some Romas where I will get into the political thing uh, and, you know, the state of the world and, and my thoughts on those. This episode is with uh, a guy named T.K. Coleman. He is a fascinating dude. Um, I don't know what how he describes himself. Uh, I think he's one of these guys who's got so many different gigs, so many oars in the water that it's hard to boil him down. Uh, I know he co-authored a book. He does podcasts. He does a blog. He's um, a public speaker. He's a motivational speaker. Um, he's a fascinating guy. You can learn about him at fee.org slash rev number one. So it's F-E-E dot O-R-G forward slash R-E-V and then the number one. Uh, it's revolution of one. And uh, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. You're going to hear. We talked about everything from Muhammad Ali to um, free market thinking to personal motivation, entrepreneurial spirit. He's particularly interested in helping um, young uh, black inner city underprivileged people uh, develop their entrepreneurial skills and uh, nourish the spirit, entrepreneurial spirit. Um, yeah, he's he's a really interesting cat, and I'm very happy that he agreed to do the podcast. The guys at um, uh, the Minimalist Guys contacted me and said, hey, we had this guy on recently. He's fantastic. You should really get in touch with him. And, and so I did, and uh, so... Thank you, minimalists, and uh, thank you, TK. It's been uh, really interesting. Uh, a few words about where I've been in the last couple of weeks. It's It's been intense after three and a half months on the road in the van. Uh, we rolled into L.A. briefly uh, for four days, hung out with my mom, got tested, of course, before uh, we went down there, negative, went to see my mom, see some friends, um, hung out with my sister, uh, hadn't seen them for six months or so. Um, so it was about time. And uh, yeah, hung out with Oliver, did some work on the van. Fucking Oliver is the best. I hope every one of you, if I could wish you one one blessing it would be to have a close friend who is very very good at fixing things and doesn't mind spending a sunday afternoon in the shop working on your van with you because that is an awesome awesome presence to have in your life so spent a sunday with oliver working on the van did some things put put a um a trailer hitch on the front of the van so i could put the bikes on the front and then uh, I've got a little platform on the back to put camping gear. So got some more storage area. Um, and then I saw, uh, saw some friends, as I mentioned, some other friends, I saw Brian Callen, 
Some of you know him, had dinner with him, actually recorded a podcast with him, which was really interesting, and I hope I'll be able to bring it to you at some point. But uh, a day or two after we recorded it, he asked me not to release it um, because of some legal stuff that's going on, and his lawyers strongly encouraged him to just sort of not uh, talk a lot publicly about what's going on in his life. If you know Brian, you know his work. He's a stand-up comic, an actor. He was kind of on top of the world about six months ago, I guess, when uh, a woman that he had known 20 years ago contacted the L.A. Times, um, I guess because she had seen that Chris D'Elia was in the news um, because of some inappropriate contact that he had had apparently with um, some fans, some of whom were under 18 at the time, or at least one of whom was under 18 at the time. And when I say inappropriate contact, I'm talking about online, not uh, in person. Um, But anyway, he was in in the news um, and she knew that he was good friends with Brian. And so that made her decide she was going to get in the news herself. And so she accused Brian of rape, uh, of raping her 20 years ago. And setting aside for the moment whether or not I believe that charge to be true, um, I don't know the woman, so admittedly everything I know about this is either from the media or from Brian directly. Um, but what happened is not that the police came to his door and he had to post bond and then he had a trial and then he was either convicted or not. What happened was that he got booted from two TV shows um, whatever stand-up opportunities exist in the time of COVID dried up pretty quickly. Uh, and a lot of people who he thought were his friends stopped calling. And his income went from Hollywood famous to pretty much zero, I would think, in the course of uh, a week or two. And he had no opportunity to defend himself. There's no, nothing, no trial, no, no process. That's it. So now again, uh, I'm not even really talking about whether the man is guilty or not. What I'm talking about is what happened to the idea of innocent until proven guilty? Now, he's not in prison, but he may as well be in some ways. If if you're imagine what would happen to you if your income was taken, your reputation was taken. And by the way, if you're a actor or stand up comic and your reputation is destroyed, you're done. I mean, it's not like. You know, you're a plumber and you fuck up a job or, you know, you come into work drunk and you get fired. You can go be a plumber somewhere else. 
You can go into business on your own. You can go find a job with another plumbing company. Um, but someone like that whose entire career is built on a public per persona and public perception, um, that's devastating. And he never really has or had a chance to defend himself. And um, yeah, that's fucked. That's a weird place for a culture to be in. All someone has to do is accuse you of something and you're fucked. Now, I don't know. Sometimes I'm wondering, you know, when's someone going to accuse me of something? I've had sex. I'm 58 years old. I've been having sex with women since I was 15. I'm not going to tell you how many women. I don't actually know how many women, but enough that there were some bad apples in there somewhere. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of room for confusion in sex. There's a lot of room for misinterpretation, miscommunication, misremembering. I mean, let's be honest. There are... There are a lot of landmines you can step in, step on when you're on the terrain of male-female intimacy. Men and women are very different in some fundamental ways that lead us to misunderstand each other uh, in ways that are sometimes fascinating, um, often fascinating but potentially very dangerous. And, you know, when I was talking with Brian, he said he was talking with his, I think it was his nephews, and he, he said to them, like, because they're you know, teenagers or something, and he, boys, yeah, obviously nephews. And he said to them, um, you know, you need to make your behavior absolutely impeccable around women. That's that's the lesson from Uncle Brian here. And I said to Brian, like, dude, how can your behavior be impeccable all the time? How can any how can we expect that? How can we ask that? I think that's unrealistic because, you know, your behavior could be impeccable from your perspective. But if you're misunderstanding the motivations and desires of the person you're with, it's not impeccable from their perspective. So I think more than striving to make our behavior impeccable, what we need to work on is communication. We need to, and that's why I always say, if you, if you can't talk about sex, you shouldn't be having it. And that gets back to this perceived responsibility that I think I have toward you to speak as openly and transparently as I can about sex and about other things that are considered shameful uh, in this culture because that shame obscures learning. It, it impedes growth and learning and clarity and ultimately love. I, I was in a conversation with someone recently on this, uh, and I'll get back to, to what I've been doing recently, um, but one of the things was floating down the Colorado River. And and it was funny because we had, uh, you know, it's pack it in, pack it out. You don't leave any trace. So it's a four-day trip. We had a what they call a groover, 
which is essentially a portable toilet and shit tank. And, um, <laughs> uh, it's called a groover because they used to shit in ammo boxes. And when you're sitting on an ammo box, it leaves grooves on your thighs, <laughs> you know? So I guess that's why rafters call it a groover. But anyway, we're first night camping and, um, one of the women really needed to take a dump, but she was uh, shy to go because it was the first She'd be the first one. So it, whoever went second would know those were her turds. <laughs> and she was laughing. I mean, she was laughing, but she was like, oh, I don't want it. And she's with her boyfriend. She's like, I, I don't want him to know that I shit, you know? And uh, I mean, how many women feel that way? How many women feel as, as unreasonable as it is? And men, I mean, as, nobody wants, everyone's ashamed of their shit. It's a weird thing, right? We all do it, but we're all ashamed of it. But particularly women who have this social expectation that they're not animals, that they're, there's no hair on their body, that they're perfect, they're these angelic creatures. And I mean, how many women are walking around thinking, Jesus, if my boyfriend ever, you know, if I forget to flush, he'll leave me. Ultimately, this shame of our bodies and of biological functions impedes love. It impedes intimacy. It impedes self-acceptance. It impedes wisdom. It impedes relaxation. It impedes so all the things that are good in life. It impedes pleasure. I don't know if I told this story in the podcast, but I still I know I've told the story about how I lived in this mansion with all these fashion models and blah blah blah, and um, I had sex with a fashion model once. And she insisted that the lights be off. I think she's the only woman I've ever had sex with who insisted that the lights be off. And when I said, well, why? She said, because I can't stop seeing my imperfections if the lights are on. I see myself from every angle. I see myself through your eyes and I can't enjoy myself. I would have understood perfectly if she had said, like, you're the ugliest dude I've ever fucked, so turn the lights off. I, I would have gotten that. But the fact that she was uptight about her own perceived attractiveness was just heartbreaking. This is one of the most beautiful women imaginable. She makes her living being on being photographed. And yet uh, that attention impedes her ability to relax. Anyway, I don't know where, I don't know how I got onto shitting and having sex with a fashion model. Oh, impeccable behavior and communication. That's where it was. Yeah. So I think the key is not to try to make your behavior impeccable. I think the key is to talk very, very clearly about what's going on, what you're doing, what you're into what you're not into, what's acceptable, what isn't acceptable. You know, it's like it's like before you have sex with someone, you really need to have a conversation about STDs, right? Like, do you have them? When were you last tested? Do you have any symptoms? Do you use condoms with other people? I, it's an awkward conversation. I know it is. But if you're not having it, you got to really think that through. Why aren't you having it? 
are you comfortable enough to have sex with this person but not comfortable enough to talk with them about this? That doesn't seem like a good idea. So I think we also need to have the conversation about power, about consent. Because some women, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but fuck it, it's true. Some women really get off on... I think most women get off on male desire and some women take it to the point where they want that desire to be uncontrollable. They want that man to want her so much that he can't control himself. Now, for some women, what does that look like? It looks like this dude is so hungry for me and that makes me hot and that makes me feel really good and that's what I need. Okay, great. Good for you. But that can also look like rape. That can also look like you're the woman's mind raping him and he's physically raping her. It's like you can get into lots of sticky situations if you don't talk about this stuff openly. And today's guest, TK Coleman, is a guy who knows how to talk and knows how to think on his feet. And I think I'm just going to leave it there because I've gone on much longer than I intended to. Like I said, I'm going to do Romas and I'm going to try to release... Um, at least two podcasts a week so I can, uh, you know, get through the, the ones that I've recorded here that have been lingering for a while and, uh, you know, get back on a current schedule now that I'm not driving around in the van. All right. Thank you, people. I'm going to play you out with a song, uh, that it's, it's not really apropos of, of TK in any way. Um, but it's a song that relaxes me. And I feel like with all the shit that's going on right now, uh, we all need to be relaxed. And I find this song to be just a song that, that encourages us to step back and kind of look at our lives from a, a bit of a distance and, uh, and not get too freaked out about small things and just enjoy the process of being alive. The song is called Sometimes, and it's by Daniel Lanois. I hope things are going okay for you out there, and uh, that you'll be back to listen to whatever the fuck I'm ranting and raving about next time. Thank you for your attention, and uh, lots of love to everybody. Sometimes, sometimes Sometimes I feel like I'm playing on the radio Sometimes I feel like I'm on a traveling road show Sometimes I got the power of the will And I know my song is gonna be alright Sometimes I feel like I'm on a freight train Forever rescued by the mystery rain Sometimes I'm just out for a thrill She always said, baby, you're gonna be alright the sun gonna come shining down, push it all away, make it all right. 
Hands in the heart of a long cold night It's all too far Out of sight, out of sight Hard to know everything's gonna be alright Everyone thinks you got everything you want Hard to have and then have none Hard to have and then have none Sometimes I want to take a pill and hide Sometimes I want to shut down and ride And go where no man should go Go where no man should go It's the complete opposite of most conversations that happen, huh? It's like if you if you put your foot in your mouth, that's definitely the highlight. That's right. No, I, I will not hold it against you. You can say whatever and we'll cut it out if you want. Um, you mentioned Muhammad Ali. It's recording now, by the way. Uh, I just saw this thing he did the other day. I posted on Twitter. Um, he was on some British talk show. Uh, he was young. He must have been, you know, yeah. in his in his prime. But he did this whole rant about how when he was a little boy, he asked his mother why everything was white. Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen that particular one. No, it was amazing, man. He it was like it was, it was like uh, you know, like a stand-up comic, like George Carlin or something. It was yeah. so well honed and tight, and he was he was just like you know, like everything's white. The the president lives in the White House, and the and he just you know everything's white. And he goes through all the you know white is good and black is bad, and he goes through all this stuff, and then he says you know, and you got this white guy in Africa named Tarzan, who's swinging through the trees going, ah, and he can talk to the animals, but the black people who've lived there forever, they can't talk to the animals. It's so powerful. You know, oh, and he's, he was he was the best, uh, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Ali. I, I went to uh, Rumble, Young Man Rumble, last year in Louisville, Kentucky. It's, uh, it's an annual event by the, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Sean Dove's doing a lot of great work there. And, and it's in the Muhammad Ali Center. Louisville mm. is, or, or as they say, Louisville. That's where Muhammad Ali was from. And I had a chance to get to, to attend a screening of, of a documentary that, that ha- has not been released yet. But just to watch moments from his life, to hear his story, to see the boldness and yeah. humor and how he yeah. communicated, I mean... That, that that that's a very special guy that doesn't really get talked about enough, you know, especially for the kind of discussions that are happening today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a buddy who, um, this guy named Pete McCormick, who's a documentary filmmaker. He made a movie called Facing Ali, I think it was, or Fighting Ali. I forget. Um, but it was interviews with guys who fought Ali over the years, right? Mm. So, you know, uh, Joe Frazier was in it, and, you know, all the big names. But there were also a lot of guys that, you know, we've never heard of, like tune-up fights, right? Yeah. And one of the things I learned in that movie was that Ali would tell his people, um, like, to pick people for the tune-up fights who needed the money. Like, 
there was one guy he heard it was a Canadian dude I think his like his wife had been in a car accident and died or his daughter died some, some family tragedy that Ali had read about and this was like a you know not a contender right like a guy who a journeyman you know made a decent living getting beat up basically and Ali told his guys like pick that guy for the next tune-up fight because he's gonna get you know 200 grand or something wow um so he's like uh, to me that kind of encapsulates Ali in a way like no doubt there was a lot of brutality in what he was doing he was beating the shit out of people but he was doing it with generosity and kindness and you know all this thought and grace it's, it's such an interesting guy yeah he was i mean i'm a lot older than you but when i was growing up he was like the hero he was the the coolest dude on the planet by far yeah i mean he, he wasn't afraid to be himself and and he made confidence look pretty you know yeah. um he, yeah. he went into a lot of spaces and he said what was on his mind and and and, and i think one of the things that gets left out of debates about the power of free speech is that you know, yeah, there are things people say that we disagree with that make us mad, that even offend us, but it's only the power to freely express disagreement with those things, criticism of those things that makes it possible to have a good world. The last kind of world we want is the kind of world where everybody's afraid to say what's on their mind. And Muhammad Ali, you know, really exhibited the kind of courage that it takes to, to be a person of change. And this was before today where it's a lot more fashionable for athletes to speak up on social issues. Muhammad Ali was doing it at a time where that could cost you your career real fast. Well, it that did. Could cost, yeah, it did. It hurt his career, you know, yeah. big time. And he was he was speaking up then, you know, long before LeBron James was talking about, you know, social justice in the way that he does. So, yeah, it's real cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a, a friend, a woman who's a lot younger than me, and Muhammad Ali's name came up. And I said, do you know about this guy? And she said, oh, yeah, he was like a boxer who was in prison for a while, right? I was like, yeah, 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 but not for, you know, raping someone or, you know, beating someone up. Like, And I had to really lay it out for the whole Vietnam thing and, you know... Um, I, I sometimes wonder, like Ali was, he was so articulate and humorous and, and self-aware, as you say. Um, I sometimes wonder if, if contemporary athletes aren't like trying to be like Ali when they're boasting about themselves, you know, like I'm the best, I'm the greatest, nobody can stand up to me, nobody, you know, that all that stuff. And they miss the fact, they miss the humor and the the nuance, you know. And so then it just comes across as like, oh, you're a bully, you're an egotist, you're not, you know, they they don't get the art of what he was doing. Yeah, Muhammad Ali had this interesting quality where he could go on this long, serious, deep political philosophical rant and then take a quick sharp turn where he's just laughing at himself and, and, and he's done with the conversation completely. That I remember seeing one interview where he's just like hammering down his point and he's, he says something like, I've got five points that I'm gonna make about this. And he gets to four and you can see that he doesn't have four. He was just talking smack, right? <laughs> Before he opened his mouth, he thought it would be impressive to say, I have five things to say about that. And when he got to four, he realized he had nothing left. And so he just goes, I, for I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> and he just oh. moved on to the next question. And I'm pretty. 
yeah, pretty no, as a girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody laughed and it was like, yeah. nobody cared. It didn't count against them. But a lot of guys now, they're so self-serious. They feel like they have so much to lose, Yeah, you know, with, with stuttering, so much to lose with forgetting your thought or changing mm-hmm. your mind. And he, ha- he had the kind of confidence that can only come not merely from being competent, but from being willing to laugh at oneself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think comedians, by the way, real quick, that's why I think comedians are, those are the, those are the people to listen to, man. If you really want to sharpen your thinking, like, yeah, you should read philosophy. Yeah. You should Mm. listen to podcasts, but comedians are, are in this interesting demographic of people that have the freedom to say a lot of the stuff that we're thinking and feeling, but they have a way of saying it that doesn't feel so costly and risky. You know, yeah. and, and so if you're if you're not listening to comedy podcasts or stand up comedy uh, comedians, you're missing out on some of the best conversations and commentary that's happening right now. I agree with you, man. I uh, I've been lucky enough to sort of um, become a bit of a I don't I don't know like an honorary member of the L.A. comedy community. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Because I, I have a bunch of buddies who are. Look, what happened was this one guy, Duncan Trussell, had me on his podcast. Like I know seven, Duncan Trussell. You yeah, know, he, used, okay. he used to be on Joe Rogan sometimes. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. He and Joe, he still does. He and Joe are, are good buddies. So Duncan and I became friends, and Duncan introduced me to Joe. So I've been on Joe's show a bunch of times with Duncan. Actually, the three of us did a series. Uh, like uh, when I was living in L.A., we would get together and do this three-way podcast. And then, you know, and then through them, I met all these other comedians. And and I agree with you. The reason I love hanging out with them is like there is nothing you can't say as long as it's funny. If it's not funny, fuck off. But if it's funny, <laughs> you know, let's dig into it. And they just like they're fearless. And they have to be because, as you say, that's where the... That's where the laughs are. The laughs are in the discomfort, in the forbidden zone, you yeah. know. And 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 I'll even I'll even make it maybe a little bit more precise and say you don't have to be funny because some jokes bomb. Some some jokes aren't funny, but but you got to be willing to to laugh at your own efforts to be funny, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so you listen to Joe Rogan. I think this is one of the things that made him such a uh, pop culture phenomenon is is it's not just that he was already you know kind of famous it's that this was a guy who would talk about psychedelics ufo conspiracy theories and <laughs> climate change all yeah. in the same conversation <laughs> yeah. willing to laugh at any moment willing to say something he thought was funny and if you didn't laugh at it he didn't feel the need to repent for 10 minutes about right it, right yeah. because because yeah. sometimes man the mere act of feeling all um feeling all apologetic about what you're doing is enough to make people nervous, even when they wouldn't have otherwise been offended. You know, it's like what Zig Ziglar said about sales, that sales is a transference of feeling. So whether you're telling a joke, pitching a product, if you're nervous about what you're saying, if you're uncomfortable with yourself, then other people are going to pick up on that and they'll eat you alive. But but, but if you're out there having fun and just keeping it real, it it works. It works. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, I mean, that's difficult in the world of sales because most of the shit people are selling is worthless crap, right? So you got to be selling something that's actually worth buying, <laughs> right, to keep it real. Yeah, you know, um, I'm quoting Zig Ziglar again, but um, when I when I first worked my, my first sales job, I read this book by him years ago called Secrets of Closing the Sale. And one of the things he said in there is that if you're not willing to take someone's last dollar for the product you're pitching, 
then you should get out of that business and go sell something that you actually believe in. Because the, the the true salesperson is the person who believes that whatever product or service they're offering is one that is going to make people wealthier for the having of it. So right. if you find yourself feeling sorry that somebody's spending their last dollar on it, you don't really believe in it. You don't really think that you're making them more valuable. And you know, we're all selling something, whether it's ideas or or products. And the key is to find that alignment between what you actually believe and what it is you're offering, you know? Mm, yeah. That's the way yeah, I see you're it. Right. Yeah. You're right. So you, you talked about, uh, you know, people being nervous and, and uh, apologetic and, and afraid of offense and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these days with what's going on, how do you uh, like, yeah. I, I kind of feel like politically and, and what's happening with race relations in the U.S. right now, it pr- the dynamic provokes a lot of these feelings that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people are being really careful what they say. Mm-hmm. People are afraid of offending. They're afraid, you know, there's all this cancel culture going on. It's really interesting. Since this has happened, um, you know, I'm going to be a cliched white guy here and tell you that I have lots of black friends. Uh, my, my sister's married to a black dude. I'm married to a, an African woman. Like you know, half my family's either American black or African black. Um, but the real question is, do you have an American Express black card? No, I don't. No, <laughs> still blue. <That's>, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but uh, none of those people have like uh, come to me trying to tell me that I should do this or I should say that, or I should use my platform, but I've had white people scolding me. Like, why aren't you using your Instagram to, you know, support this thing? Why aren't you doing it's, it's a weird thing how white people are scolding white people. Um, but I'm not getting any of that energy from the black people in my life. Mm. Is that because, like, what do you think about that? And I don't, I don't want to put you in a position of speaking for all black people, but is it, do you think it's that, that people are like, I got bigger things to worry about than whether some dude is using his Instagram the right way? Or what do you, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I think there are a few explanations uh, for that. I, I'll give you two off the top of my head. So the first, I'll start with a charitable one. On, on one side of things, it is true to say that it is a lot easier for white people to say to other white people things that might be offensive to black people, right? Mm. Th- th- there's a different kind of social risk involved. Um, you know, uh, Tim Wise wrote an article that I recommend everybody read called What Kind of Card is Race to Play? And he talks about this idea of of the mythical race car, which which is a phrase that became popular around the time of like the OJ case, right? Where clearly there was a racial dynamic to the case. You had a black guy being accused of of killing a, a white blonde woman, and that has a lot of history behind that, right? You know, a, you know, a white woman is found dead. A black guy is accused of killing her. Uh, you know, a big part of that case was fighting over making sure that the, that the trial happens in L.A. rather than Brentwood so we can get a minority mm. jury. The prosecution was kind of clueless as to how much race would play a role. You had the defense who knew how to work it. You had Cochran, who had all the elements of a black preacher. They even wore the African ties. Right. And, and those guys put on a clinic in terms of how to appeal 
to the racial tensions felt by people in the jury, and they were able to win that case. And one of the things that prosecution accused them of was playing the race card, using race as an issue, exploiting it as an issue so that you can create advantages. Well, that may have worked for OJ, who had an awful lot of money to buy the best lawyers ever and who had historically great lawyers that most of us don't have access to. But for the average black person, invoking the race card as something that's just going to get you off murder or as something that's just going to open doors for you is not a reality. Uh, in fact, if you're a black person in predominantly right white spaces, you've got to be really careful about how frequently you invoke race as an explanation for what's going on in your world, mm. because there are just a lot of people in this country who are sick and tired of that conversation. They don't want to hear it. They associate it with with self-victimization. They mm. associate it with blaming white people for all your problems. As a quick example, I remember having a, a white person once ask me if I felt like racism was a problem in America. And I, I said I did. And, and, and there was this immediate response of, well, I don't feel like I owe you anything. I don't feel like white people are responsible for your problems. And I laughed because I, I, I was like, who said anything about that? Right. right. I'm, I'm, I'm happier than you, man. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Like, who said anything about that? But, but but because there's this conflation of believing that race can be an issue with you know, endorsing a certain political view or or being a victim, there are a lot of people who might respond defensively to a black mm. person talking about these things. So it's easier. It's, it's simply easier for a white person to say to another white person, hey, what you're saying there is offensive. So that's mm. one aspect of it. Mm. But let, let me give you a less charitable aspect of it. Yeah. And that is there are some white people who are completely out of touch with black experience and they are plagued with white guilt and they feel the need to set themselves up as representatives or spokespersons of the black race as a way of assuaging their their white guilt. And sometimes people in that demographic, as well-meaning as they are, create more problems than they solve. Mm. You know, um, there is no one who speaks to the plight of black people better than black people themselves, even if it's harder for those black people to gain an audience. And and one of the things that's creating a lot of problems today is there are certain groups of people who shine a selective spotlight on black angst because, you know, um, certain acts, aspects of black suffering are, are maybe politically profitable for them to focus on. Mm. Certain aspects of black suffering are, are perhaps more interesting to them. And so they, they, they create a lot of conversation around those things while ignoring other important things. And I think it's very important that the conversation on race in America is not shaped by white people who speak on behalf of black people, but by black people themselves talking about their own experiences. Because sometimes those two things are worlds apart. Those right. are a couple of my thoughts on it. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that, that's actually the, the your second point is how I interpret it. It's like, look, this has become fashionable for you, so now you're running around, you know, telling, showing everyone how virtuous you are. Um, and uh, I'm talking about the white people who are, you know, uh, trying to rally the troops suddenly. Um, where where were you ten years ago? You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Where. Yeah, it's it's a it's an incredible thing. Do you ever feel, you know, you you make the point it's totally valid that white people should not be speaking for black people, but do you ever feel when when you hear a black person on TV like, dude, you're not speaking for me, like, 
I mean, should black people be speaking for black people, in other words, or is it all about personal experience, right? Like OJ's life is very different from, uh, you know, uh, Cornell West's life, for example, right? So it's just, it's interesting how, sure. you know, even if you're talking about your own group, you can't help but generalize. Sure. Well, I, I don't think that generalization is, is necessarily wrong. In fact, I don't think it's possible to engage in inductive reasoning at all, which is necessary mm. for survival without doing some generalization. The problem is when we fail to recognize the limits of generalization. It's similar to having biases. Bias is, is a natural part of life. We all have biases. But it's when you mistake your subjectivity for objectivity. It's when you pretend like you don't have them, or it's it's when you don't factor the reality of bias into your analysis of things that you are misled. So mm -hmm. everything has its proper place, everything has its context. In terms of speaking for black people, I think when people criticize that, there's something very specific they're talking about. They're usually talking about the idea like, oh, here are the definitive leaders of the black community. Right. Well, what does Jesse Jackson have to say? What does Al Sharpton have to say? And, 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 and there's this idea where, you know, if if you disagree with that, you don't get to be black or or if they say that that's what black people are supposed to believe. Or if you're not black and you're listening to that, you make the mistake of thinking, oh, that's how all black people think. If you look at speaking on behalf of black people in that way, that's a very dangerous thing. However, even though we are all individuals with distinct experiences, it is also true that there are patterns of commonality that connect human experience across many different demographics and categories. If you and I are both people who attend church, there are things we're going to share in common that are not true of people who don't attend church. If you and I have both gone to college, there are definitely some commonalities to our experience. And there's no reason to think that that would be an exception for black people, just as it's also true for white people. And so I do think it is important for black people to use their voices to talk about aspects of their experience, if for no other reason than that it can make others more mindful of things that might occur in the experiences of groups that are not like them or people that are not like them. But we always have to make room for the exception because it's the exception that paves the way for nuanced thinking. Yeah, yeah. So what's your story, man? I, I don't know much. We should give a shout out to the minimalist, by the way, who put us in touch. Um, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I'm living in my van right now. <laughs> uh, I was like in the middle. I was in some canyon in Colorado when I got a message from uh, uh, Joshua saying, like, hey, you should really have this guy in your podcast. He's super smart and really interesting. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll be in California in a week. But I've been driving, I've been camping, I haven't really had a chance to look into your background much. I know you do public speaking. Uh, I looked at your website, which is really interesting. Your, you share your daily notes uh, on your blog there, which, which is fascinating. I wish I was organized enough to do that. Um, but tell me something about, you know, where do you come from? How, what, are, what are you doing? What's your thing? Yeah, man. I, I mean, so I, I won't spend a lot of time on like boring bio stuff, but like in terms of my everyday work, um, I'm a director of entrepreneurial education at a nonprofit organization called FEE that stands for the Foundation for Economic Education. It's it's the largest or oldest free market think tank in the country. And we devote ourselves to um, promoting 
the economic way of thinking and entrepreneurial literacy. We do a lot of workshop seminars for high school students, college students, and I focus on helping reach millennials and Gen Z with economic and entrepreneurial thinking. And, and I have a special place in my heart and a special mission for working with young black people as well, because mm -hmm. I believe that the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in black communities. But because young black folks, particularly young black boys, are often uh, taught by, by teachers from a different culture who don't really understand what they're dealing with at home, what they're dealing with in their neighborhoods, that could be causing a lot of problems for them in terms of focusing or following the rules at school. They, they can very easily or quickly be demonized or vilified, and, and, and a lot of them aren't getting the mentorship, the education that they need, the support that they need. And, and so, you know, young black boys grow up thinking of themselves in a way that is less than what their full potential actually is. And I want to be one of those people who uses his voice, uses his resources, uses his experience to, to help more young black folks take that entrepreneurial spirit and, and actualize it in the real world by creating wealth for themselves and, and helping move black communities towards economic self-sufficiency. Because at the end of the day, you've got to follow the money if you want to understand what's happening in our world, even at the level of politics. And there are a lot of people who might pretend to care, claim to care, say all the right things. But as black people, until we are in economic control of our own destinies, we will not know what it means to live freely and fully. And that's something that I want to promote. In terms of my background, before this, I've spent the last six years of my life working as the education director for an apprenticeship program that I co-founded. Uh, my co-founder, Isaac Morehouse, and I, we, we saw a gap in the marketplace in terms of higher education. Most people are brought up to think that in order to be a player in the marketplace, you've got to go get yourself a college credential. Um, it, it's, you know, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg or, or Steve Jobs, unless you have a million dollar startup idea, um, mm. you've got to go get yourself a degree. And uh, we, we just simply think that's not true. And, and even if it is true, it's not true as a matter of principle. It's true as a matter of fact. Facts mm. can change in light of broader, more timeless principles in, in every category of life, whether it's information technology or, or, you know, transportation technology. We witness innovation. We witness improvements. And we don't see that same pace of innovation in education. And it's not because that's the way it is and has to be, uh, but because of the way we think about schooling, particularly higher education, tends to be monolithic and one dimensional. You see more innovation at the secondary and elementary levels than at the university level. Mm. And so we wanted to bring back the concept of apprenticeships uh, because for the most part, if you're if you're a college opt out, I don't use the term drop out because just because you choose to exit a system doesn't mean that you're some kind of failure who couldn't live up to the standard. It just means that you exercise your option to do something different. But for most college opt outs, the only option would be the military or, or trade school or, or, you know, something along those lines. And we wanted to bring the concept of apprenticeships to those career fields that don't require a degree. Yes, everybody is always quick to remind me, well, TK, if you want to be a lawyer in this country, if you want to be a doctor in this country, you know, they're always quick to remind me of the areas where you must have a degree by law to practice. But there are a lot of areas, particularly in the startup space, where they don't care about that. 
They're, they're open to, you know, alternative credentialing. They're open to, you know, people demonstrating their ability to create value in different ways. Mm. And, and they just want people that can hustle, people that have character, people that are reliable. So we started up that, man, and we spent the last six years helping young people, aspiring professionals develop skills, learn how to create value in the marketplace. And we've helped launch over 200 careers. And I've been in the startup space for at least the past decade, and I've just learned so many things from my own struggles, my own successes, working with businesses and customers alike. And I've come to believe that while being an entrepreneur involves starting a business, being entrepreneurial is a way of thinking that can apply to every area of life. And so now I want to take a lot of my experiences and and help coach a lot of young people on how to be entrepreneurial and apply that to problems that you have in your family, apply that to issues Mm. that you have at your job, even if you're an employee, apply that to art that you're creating, whatever it may be. And so that's that's kind of like the mission that I'm on, and that's a little bit about my professional background, but I can go in whatever direction you take me, but you gotta steer me, man, because I (laughs) I start talking and, you know, I, I keep going. Oh, you're my favorite kind of guest, man. Just put you on <laughs> autopilot. I'll just sit back and let you go. Uh, you you made an interesting point there that that uh, an entrepreneurial approach uh, is not only appropriate for business. So you're talking about family conflicts or or you know uh, organization. What? How would you break that down? What is an entrepreneurial mindset? I think about the Seth Godin quote. He said. Wait, who was the guy who who hosted American uh, Bandstand? Was it Dick? Uh, oh, Dick. Uh, American was it Bandstand? Dick? That's way back. That's way. Was it Dick Clark? Dick Clark. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, yeah. Right. You're right. You're right. There was a Seth Godin quote. He said, "Dick Clark is dead. American Bandstand is not going to call and put you on the air. That world is over, and it's being replaced with the scary and awesome world where you have to pick yourself." The essence of entrepreneurial thinking is the adoption of the permissionless mindset. It's recognizing that whatever it is you are going to create or achieve in your life, it is going to have to come from a place of being proactive and creative in whatever you do. It's it's already too late for the person who thinks that they're just going to be handed a roadmap do what they're told, follow the instructions, be a good little obedient boy, and then someone's gonna hand you the gold and take it to an awesome life. That person is the easiest person to replace because if I can give you a roadmap that guarantees the way to success, well, guess what? I can take that roadmap to you, from you and I can give it to a guy that's willing to work 30 minutes more. I can give it to a person that's willing to stay up to two, two o'clock in the morning or make sacrifices that you're not willing to make. So the easier it is for me to give you a roadmap, the easier it is for me to replace you. Building an effective career or an effective life is not just about a scientific approach. It's just it's also about an artistic approach. The scientific approach is when you say, OK, truth is this objective thing. It exists out there in the world. And I don't make it up. I don't invent it. I discover it, right? So, so gravity isn't something that we made up. We, we discovered it. Electricity isn't something that we made up. It's something that we discovered. And, and that is a very useful, important, logical way to think. But when you're creating a life, you can't limit yourself to scientific thinking. Artistic thinking is one where you say, all right, how do I get a song? 
I don't get a song by treating music as if it's something that exists out there independently of what I bring to it subjectively, and I'm gonna try to discover it. You know, hey, what should I do with my life? You know, I'm, I'm gonna conduct a survey and figure out what I should do with my life. No, the way Jay-Z gets a song is he literally makes it up, right? And, and, there, are, and there are things in this life that you don't get to experience unless you have the guts to just make it up. That doesn't mean that you're being irrational or that you're being anti-science, but within the realm of being scientific, you have to bring a sense of artistry to what you do. The worst kind of answers are the ones that you get by conducting surveys and saying, what do you think I should do? The Mm -hmm. best kinds of answers are the ones that are difficult. They cost you a few nights of sleep. They don't come overnight. But, but they come from a process of creative risk-taking and experimentation. And so the entrepreneurial thinking is about saying, I'm not going to start with what the world gives me permission to do. I'm not going to let circumstances be the driving force in my life, but I'm going to recognize that I have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in my own life. And if the world doesn't give me permission to try something or do something, to hell with the world. Right. You know, I, 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 I always tell people, don't just listen to what other people advise. Also pay attention to what they admire, mm. because when people when people give you advice, they're going to tell you the safe thing that exempts them from liability. But then when, when, when you watch what they admire, it's always the person that does crazy stuff, man. It, mm. It's always the person that does stuff that we would never advise anyone else to do. You know, so if you limit yourself to a space of what other people feel comfortable advising you. I mean, you're going to live such a boring life. You got to get out there and be willing to do things that frighten people, that concern people, that scare people, but nobody can tell you what that secret is. It's got to come from within you. You know, uh, who was it? Speed Levitch who said, he said, uh, there are secret places inside the human heart that know nothing of the outside world. It's each individual's job to go search for what those secret spaces are and to unearth them. Man, you yeah, you said a lot of really smart things right there. I uh, I often tell people on this podcast not to waste their money going to college or grad school unless they want to do that kind of you know be an airline pilot or a brain surgeon, right? Um, yeah. But the best way to get an education, it, I I agree with you hundred percent, is to find someone who's doing what you want to do and make yourself mm. valuable to them. And go there and you spend a lot less money and you'll end up with a much better education, a lot better contacts, you know, better uh, leads for for careers or jobs in that field. That's where it is, especially now where getting a higher education means you come out 50 to 100 thousand dollars in debt. You're already losing before you start the game. It's crazy. I I think that's a scam. Well, that's the thing that people miss, man. It's funny how people move the goalposts when they talk about education. Um, People speak of knowledge as if it's this priceless thing, right? Well, knowledge is priceless. Well, that's fine. I'm okay with people thinking that way because I actually agree. But if people are charging you a price for distributing that knowledge, then now we have to think about that like any other purchase, right? Yeah. That's just that's just being rational. So if, if you want to tell me some esoteric truth, okay, that, that can be priceless. But if you want to say, TK, I'm going to charge you $20 to teach you the secrets of life. Now I'm making an economic decision. This is an investment. Yeah. And it becomes important yeah. for me to put on my thinking cap and say, all right, 
what do I expect this information to do for me that would make it worth 20 bucks? Because there's an opportunity cost involved. There's not just a transaction cost, right? Mm -hmm. I am now foregoing the opportunity to do other things with that $20 in order to give it to you to teach me your secrets of life. And and you should hold yourself accountable to being able to provide an answer to that question. If you want to sell me information for $20, you shouldn't be offended if I ask, why is it worth $20, right? And people speak of education like it's an investment, but can you imagine any other investment like that? Can you imagine someone uh, going to a bank and saying, uh, hey, I want you to give me uh, a $100,000 loan for starting a small business. You are telling the bank right then and there that you're going to do something productive that's aimed at making money. You think that bank's going to give you $100,000? Nope. They want to see a business plan, right? They want to see some evidence that your idea is good. Then they want to see some evidence that your idea will actually succeed, even though you have a, have a money-making idea. But you go, but 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 you you go to the government now and say, hey, I want to go get a college degree for a hundred thousand uh, dollars. I might major in theater. I might major in philosophy. I might major in in women's studies. Whatever. <laughs> they don't care, man. It's free money, right? Yeah. Here you go. Yeah. Here yeah. you go. It, it, it's amazing, and I, you know, I I always have to issue out this disclaimer. And I don't know if it's because people want to misunderstand or if it's just really a a difficult thing to understand. But I'll issue out the formal disclaimer. If you are someone who's passionate about going to college and you have thought about these various factors and this is what you want to do with your life, far be it from me to be the person who abandons his life philosophy of mind your own business to tell you what I think you ought to do. Right. Right. But 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 if we're going to challenge people to think critically who opt out of school and say, hey, man, you know, uh, what if it doesn't work out? We should challenge people to think critically about taking on debt and going to college and and, and, and and at least to think a little critically about what you're majoring in and how you're going to use that degree and, and so forth. It it amazes me how much that doesn't get thought about, you know. Yeah. But yeah. But hey, to each, to each his own, to each his own. Well, it's, you know, and, and so many of the things that the points that you're making are sort of intertwined, you know, like, um, you, you know, you said knowledge is priceless. OK, it is. But it's also free. Like you got a you got books behind you. I'm looking at you right, and both of us actually have a bookshelf behind us. That's knowledge, right? Now those books cost money, but you can get them used. Most of them you can get used. There are libraries where you can get them for nothing. So the the access to knowledge is not controlled by universities. It's it's a pyramid scheme, uh, from my perspective, for most forms of education. Because most now with podcasts, you can listen to people like yourself or, you know, comedians or professors or all this knowledge is being dispensed free of charge. So why is it that you feel the need to go to a university to sit in a class with a hundred other kids listening to a TA talk about things that you could be sitting at home reading on your own? It's a lack of discipline. It's taking the easiest path, even though it's the most expensive. And that's exactly the kind of thing that an innovative employer is looking for. They want to see someone who takes an, a novel path. They want to see someone who's got the initiative to figure it out for themselves and take a a unique route, not someone who goes right down the middle of the highway with everyone else, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And and here, here's what I would say about so I'm not I don't feel any need to say, "Oh, you're stupid if you go to college." Or all these colleges are stupid. Rather than getting rid of colleges, I'm I'm a free market guy. And, and, and what that means for me is 
I believe that ultimately people respond to incentives and that we shouldn't place our trust in the benevolence of institutions and individuals, but we should place our trust in incentives, right? Mm. And so the best kind of system is the one that incentivizes people to do what is best for the people they purport to serve. It's a system that is open to accountability, a system that is open to competition, and a system where if you don't do right by people, it hits you where it hurts, right in your pocketbook. And I think in any kind of system where service providers are artificially insulated from the accountability that comes with competition, you're Mm. gonna see less innovation, you're going you're gonna to see less quality customer service and, and things will remain more stagnant and bureaucratic over time. And so what I would love to see, if, if you really want to see innovation in education, is I would make a case against the subsidization of education. Hmm. Because, you know, it, it was Milt Friedman who said that, that there are basically like four levels of spending. The first level is you spend your money on yourself. The second level is you spend your money on other people. The second level is you spend other people's money on yourself. And then the last level is you spend other people's money on other people, right? Uh-huh. And, and as you go down, your thinking gets a little less critical, right? Be- because we're removing, we're, we're removing ownership for consequences further and further away from you. And, and, and the fact of the matter is people tend to think more critically you know, and, and make more conscious, mindful decisions when they have to bear the cost of their own actions. And so the problem with our subsidized higher education system is that customers are artificially insulated from the natural pain point of making a decision. Why is it that no 19, 20 year old is going around getting in six figure debt for starting a business or buying a Lamborghini? Because the incentive system doesn't let them do it. Banks aren't that stupid, right? Banks aren't dumb enough to give them that kind of loan, right? You you, you have to, when you have to pay your own money and you've got to come up with it now, it's extremely hard. But anytime you make it exceptionally easy for people to get loans for things, they tend not to think as judiciously about it. And not only that, but from a customer service standpoint, if I'm a university and I I have governments guaranteeing my source of revenue. I wish I had that as a business owner. I don't really wish I had it because I'm against it as a matter of principle, but man, how easy would that be for me as a business owner when my customers don't have to feel the pain of paying out of pocket and come up with their own money, but the government says, oh, if you buy from TK, we'll make it really easy for you to get a loan and you don't have to think about that for a long time. Man, you know what's going to happen with my business? It's going to go up. And, 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 and I also get to charge prices that fit that, right? But, but when you look at, at industries where customers and their buying decisions aren't subsidized, those companies have to cater to the customers more. They often have to lower prices. They have to improve innovation because they're constantly being held accountable to people that are asking, why am I paying all this money for this? Why am I paying all this money for this? But when it's artificially easy for people to pay, those questions don't get asked. So I would love to see college. I I would contend, I'm not anti-college. I love college so much that I would love to see college do like any other business and stand on its own two feet and prove its ability to survive by being accountable to the customers that it's there to serve. Yeah. When you look at American society now, you see that sort of 
economic situation spreading throughout the the country. You see it in the defense industry. You see it in education, as we've been talking about. You see it in the pharmaceutical industry, right, where it's actually illegal for hospitals to negotiate prices. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, yeah. you, uh, hospitals can't band together. The government isn't negotiating prices with, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So to me, it looks like the, um, the the corporations and, and corporate power have taken over government. So there's no counterbalance to corporate power. Now, I heard you say you're a free market guy, and I would I would agree with that. But I don't think we have a free market or anything like it in the United States right now. Absolutely not. No. Um, and, and it's it's a shame because a yeah. lot of a lot of clear and evident corruption that we see in the world kind of gets blamed on free market. And then many, many professing capitalists feel the need sometimes to defend nonsense because it's like, oh, but it's a corporation and that's capitalist because they do it for profit and we got to defend that. And then it kind of makes the free market position look stupid. But we don't live in a pure free market. And one of the things that uh, many uh, large corporations are guilty of doing is they'll use free market principles to get into a position of prosperity. And then in order to artificially insulate themselves from competition, they'll fund lobbyists who then go out there and fight for laws that kind of give them unnatural advantages that right. make it harder for the little guy to ever be able to replace them. And that's, right. that's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. You win the game and then you uh, change the rules to make sure you keep winning the game. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. So earlier you were saying that, you know, getting back to, to uh, race issues and class issues, you were saying that, um, you felt that uh, it was it was important for black people to take control of their own economic destiny. Now, I don't know. Do you mean that as individually or do you mean that in a like a Malcolm X kind of like black people should spend money in black, you know, black businesses and, uh, you know, kind of insulate ourselves from the, the dominant culture and take care of each other economically? Well, I, I mean the first, but but let, let's be clear about about that second one, too, and the implications that it has for it. I don't believe that uh, the lot of black people in American society is going to improve if we just preach a guilt based message that says independently of the quality of black owned businesses, only shop at black owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Right. That that's that's certainly not where it starts. That reminds me of. You know, growing up in the church, people being like, only buy, you know, at Christian businesses. Uh, Yeah, but if we're being honest, some of these Christian businesses absolutely suck. Their products are terrible. Their customer service is terrible. So it, it, it don't it won't do us any good. If, if we if we now have to pretend that customer service is good just because it's coming from black folk or mm. that the food is good just because it's a black owned restaurant, that's not what's going to cut it. When I talk about economic self-sufficiency, I mean, number one. Um, help provide economic education in black communities, right? Help help teach help teach black folk the principles of value creation. What exactly is wealth? Where does wealth come from? How is wealth made in a free market, right? Also helping black people understand economic thinking in terms of many policies that are advanced in the name of helping black folks. This goes to our earlier conversation about Many white people setting themselves up as the spokesperson for black people. There are many 
sincere, well-meaning white people with the right rhetoric saying, hey, black people, we're going to advocate for these policies on your behalf. And if we don't understand the economic ramifications of those policies, we'll be like, "Okay, you're looking out for us. And then we'll embrace policies that actually hurt our communities. You know, um, economist Thomas Sowell who is a black man, more black people need to know about, said that you have to judge economic policies by the results, not the rhetoric, because Mm. there's a lot of sincere rhetoric, but sincerity is not a substitute for for truth. So I think it starts with economic education, but it also starts with helping young black folks um, improve entrepreneurial potential. So for instance, something that, that comes up a lot in discussions on racism in America is the different ways in which black people are viewed. When we go looking for jobs, right, or when we're out there networking, when we're trying to raise startup capital, things along those lines, developing our entrepreneurial potential provides us with one alternative. It's not the only alternative, but it provides us with one alternative to opt out of a system that says we need to get them to see us differently to a system that says we have the power to create our own and it doesn't matter how they see us. Now, We're not going to accomplish everything we need with that one approach, but the more we can make what we are trying to do in black communities less dependent on white people agreeing with how we see reality, the more power we will have. The last thing you want to do is be in a situation where you need the permission of having one arguments with white people that have different experiences from you in order to move your life forward. So so I, I think it starts in that direction. And then- just building more black businesses, you know, bu- building more black businesses. I mean, black owned businesses th- that are designed to serve anybody. You know, you don't want to deny profit just because it's coming from non-black people. Right. But 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 as, as black people, the more economic self-sufficiency we have, then we can access a greater amount of educational resources. You take, for instance, the public schooling system in this country. It's financed by the taxpayers. Right. And so if you live in a worse neighborhood, you are likely to have less resources or less quality teachers, right? The the better of an economic position you are in, the more you can afford to open yourself to a broader array of educational options, the more the better of a chance you have of accessing mentors and other experiences that can take you outside of the neighborhood that you grew up in and you can begin to to break this cycle of poverty that plagues a lot of black communities. So that's just a start to the conversation in terms of what I mean by economic self-sufficiency. What, what do you, did you go to college? What's your, your background? It sounds like you're, you study economics a lot. You've got a lot of economics in the mind there. Did you uh, study formally or do you a self-taught or what's your background? Yeah, well, let me be real careful here because there are a lot of credentialists and experts who are all too happy to point out you know, people who are talking about things without the proper credentials. Right. So, so (laughs) not on this show, man. Yeah. So I'm a fan of economics. Uh I'm a lover of economics. I'm a lifelong student of economics and, and I aim to continue expanding my knowledge on this topic, but I don't have any formal education in the field. I don't have any degree in the field. I do not wear the title economist or profess to be anybody's economic guru. <laughs> if, if you want a recommendation for some really awesome books to read, yeah. I'm happy to recommend people that devote their lives to like research in economics. But, you know, I, I like to take the things that I study in economics and philosophy and, and in education. And I like to take my experience as an educator and an entrepreneur and, and combine those things to to 
um, to, to exert a positive influence in, in my world. I, I look at entrepreneurship as economics and action. Right. Right. So even though I've never studied it formally, you know, I, I've had to embody those principles. I've had to embody that way of thinking in my day to day life. So so that's that's kind of my background. But I, I spent a lot of time listening to this stuff, reading this stuff and, and you know, talking with a lot of my colleagues who, who do, you know, research in this area full time. Right. Right. Yeah. What's your take on UBI? Man, that's so broad. Like maybe maybe give me a take to, to volley with you well, on, you yeah, know, I, well, universal basic income. But what do you want to talk about? Yeah. Well, do you think uh, do you think it would have a positive effect, uh, for example, on on the kind of people that you're working with who, uh, you know, maybe need that safety net, maybe need a little support? I know a lot of people criticize the idea saying, oh, everyone will just be lazy. They won't do anything. That's not supported by any of the evidence that I've seen in places that have tried the uh, a universal basic income. Uh, in fact, what it seems to do is is lead people to, you know, take more entrepreneurial risks, uh, get more education, gives them extra time to sit back and think about what they really want to do, uh, rather than just, you know, rushing into the first job that gets offered to them. Um, but as a, you know, as a free market kind of guy, I wonder if, if you see it the same way or if you have a different take on it. Yeah. So I think when it comes to any question like that, the, the first thing that we have to do is we have to take it out of the abstract and we've got to contextualize it. Right. Mm. So when it comes to any question like, well, hey, what do you think of UBI? You think it'll be a good thing? The two questions we've got to ask are compare it to what and at what expense? We got to ask, compare it to what? Because everything has something that we can compare it to. And depending on what that is, we can say it's better or it's worse, right? It's like, if you give me $50, is that good? Well, compared to what? If, if If you don't owe me anything and you're just making a nice gesture, you're a god in my world for doing that. On the other hand, if you owe me $100 and you've owed that to me for the past three months and now you're just giving me 50, I kind of feel insulted, right? right? right. So, so compared to what? And then at what expense? Everything has trade-offs. There is no such thing as a choice you can make that does not come at the expense of an alternative choice you can make. And we, so we got to look at things in those two terms. For the people who say, well, look, it'll make people you know, lazy, it'll, it'll, it'll incentivize people in the wrong direction, okay. I understand that argument, but we're already in a welfare state in the same way that you you pointed out earlier. We're, we're not in a free market right now. So the question isn't, hey, we're, we're currently in a free market. Do we do UBI? If that was the question, I would give you a resounding no. Heck no. You, you're you're going to take us backwards, right? But we're already in a welfare state. I can think of a number of things that UBI would be better than. OK, so so I'll be charitable in that regard. What I would say, however, is if the goal is to help make poorer people more prosperous, I think there are some higher priority things that we can do. In fact, I would frame it negatively, not positively. I would say I think there are some wealth ruining, absolutely destructive, poverty enhancing things that we are already doing that's making people's lives worse. And if we just stop doing a few of those things, we wouldn't even need to have this discussion about UBI. So what what are those things? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, education and school choice, for one. 
Uh, we do know that there's a direct relationship between people's financial options in life and the quality of education they have. The way education is set up right now by our public school system, it hurts minorities and it operates according to a growth model where the worse these schools perform, the stronger the case becomes for adding more money to it. Right. Mm. In, in the free market, the worse you perform, the, the more money is taken away. <laughs> right. And the faster you go out of business. It's the opposite. Whenever the government has the monopoly on a provision of service, it's the absolute opposite. The worse that it performs, the more inclined people are to advocate for more funding. And it operates on this growth model where it actually takes in more money, the worse that it actually does. But what happens if we advocate for school choice, which is kind of like a middle ground between, you know, the anarcho-capitalist case you can make for the privatization of school altogether, which would be more in alignment with my position. I believe if you privatize schooling altogether, you then introduce the opportunity for innovation and competition that gives a broader array of options for parents and their children. Now you have poorer people are able to access resources that weren't previously possible. But even at the level of school choice, you can give, you know, parents can have vouchers and now they have the option of selecting a school for their children that may not be the one in their neighborhood that they're dissatisfied with and their destiny is no longer determined by the area code that they live in, right? By the zip code that they live but, in. But how is that? Okay. Gonna, That's one example. How's that going to work though? Because you, if you, you you just shut down the schools, if you say, look, this school in South Central L.A., it's not performing, you got a high dropout rate, you, your kids aren't happy, they're not learning, shut it down, right? Who's going to come in there and and compete? Who's going to, you know, you've got food deserts in the same neighborhoods. you got no grocery stores, you, you got 7-Eleven is as close as you get to a grocery store. You know, Whole Foods isn't looking to come into South Central and open up, right? I don't think you have that that competition, that free market fervor happening in, in underserved neighborhoods. Great question. So I want to say a few things about that. So number one, the school choice option doesn't require that, right? So the school choice option would simply say that for parents who may not want their child to go to the public school in their neighborhood, you are free to receive a voucher because you're already paying for it anyway in the form of taxes. You will receive a voucher and you will be able to send your child to an alternative school that is more in accordance with your goals. But you have so to you pay don't, for the transportation, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, 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 but so, so you don't have to adopt you don't have to adopt the shut down the school option for the school choice option, right? Mm. So, so, so that is a possibility. And, and by the way, don't, under, don't, don't underestimate the, the number of parents out there who actually would be happy to figure out the transportation problem if they can get the kids into a better school. Like, like, like we have to be careful with these, I feel sorry for X arguments without actually listening to the voice of X. Mm -hmm. I mean, th th there are people in communities who have gotten in trouble with the law because they try to lie about their address, you know, because the aunt lives in a different neighborhood. And like, there are people who have been forcibly prevented by the law 
from sending their child children to a school in a better neighborhood. So poor people have already tried to bring that quote unquote transportation problem on themselves because yes, poor people do care about their own wealth as much as we talk to them about, talk about them like they don't. Poor people demonstrate all the time that they are willing to leave their neighborhoods and do all sorts of inconvenient things to go work a job, okay? There are people that live in the inner city who you know, their children go out to like a McDonald's in a suburb that's like 45 minutes away from home, right? And that's a problem they choose to take on because of the sacrifices that they're willing to make. So the the whole, the central point here is choice. It's about not allowing someone who feels pity for the poor to choose for the poor. If it's, mm. if the transportation problem is really too much for a poor person, okay, let them decide. Don't let some well-meaning do-gooder be the one to say, I'm not going to allow a poor person to have that option because even though I send my kids to the nice private schools in the suburbs because I'm rich, I've appointed myself as the sympathizer of the poor and I'm going to decide what's good for them. How insulting, right? Yeah. How yeah. anti-freedom, how anti-choice, right? So, so choice isn't coercion. So that's the first thing. But, but let's go to my more radical model of privatizing it all together, right? So first, we can't talk about shutting down a system without also talking about the implications for that economically. So this is a system that's being financed by whom, right? So anytime you, you shut down something, that's being financed by people, then the people who finance it would, if you're being honest and fair about it, would now have those resources, right? So, so now we have people with resources, people with the power to make investments on their education because they got the money back. And we have an economic incentive for other people who, you know, who, who are looking for entrepreneurial opportunities to provide education services, right? Um, let's, let, let's not associate subsidize with free. Just because we don't see how we're paying for it doesn't mean that it's not a money-driven system, mm -hmm. right? It seems like it's free, but there is no one that's going to school for free. You are paying for it. You're just paying for it in a way that is not obvious to you, but you are definitely making sacrifices, even if the sacrifice happens in the form of the government takes the money from you before you have a chance to see what it feels like to hold it in your possession. So in terms of economic incentives, Think, think about it. I'll just give you one example. Think about all the businesses out there. Um, you, you actually see startup companies like Google doing this right now, where a lot of places are doing in-house apprenticeships, right? Mm. The, the, the education is moving more in the direction of specialization, where companies say, hey, look, there's a shortage of coders, right? We need a lot of people who can do this kind of work. We'll be happy to pay for you to come train here in exchange for a two-year contract where you work here doing this kind of doing this kind of job, right? And 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 that's not the only industry. Th think of it in the way of, of fitness. In fitness, we don't have this philosophy that there's one right way to exercise because politicians don't decide what fitness is for the rest of us. You, you've got you've got a Pilates studio over here. You've got a yoga studio over here. Yeah. You've got a gym where all people do in that gym is deadlifting, right? You've got a swimming pool over here and an instructor that's offering lessons over there. 
And all the healthy people are snobbish elitists who make fun of each other for exercising in the wrong way. And yet the marketplace accommodates a wide range of different ways of working out. And we literally live in a world where everybody that's in health and nutrition, they're worse than religious people. They all think they're completely right. (laughs) They think everybody with a different diet, a different way of working out is a total idiot, right? And yet somehow the market accommodates all these different ways of being. Well, how does it happen? How does it happen? When you allow people to express their diverse range of interests through choice, they are then free to experiment with what's best for them. And the entrepreneurs are now incentivized to innovate. But if you look at the way things are now, when someone has a monopoly on something, a monopoly on a service that's backed by force, you're not going to see innovation because no one is incentivized to compete. If I'm an entrepreneur, why would I come up with some education model that's cheaper than than what currently exists when I have to charge more than them just to stay in business because they already have customers by law. I can't compete with that, right? Like even if you don't send your kid to public school, you're still a customer, you're paying for it. If I'm an entrepreneur, how can I compete with any service provider when you already have everyone as a customer by law? You've just raised the cost. So a lot of people talk about private school and, and, and they and they convince themselves that, oh no, if everything was private, it'd be really expensive. Do you see how much those private schools cost? But that's artificial. Right. That's based on what those private schools have to do in order to compete with another system that already has all of their customers by law. So even if you somehow attract these people, public school's still gonna make money off of them. Right. Right. So, so your, your expenses to be a service provider are artificially high. But once you privatize the system, then that means innovation, just like in every other area we've seen where innovation happens, costs begin to come down. That's what we expect with innovation. Cost begins to come down, you know, like, but how will people afford a Kindle? Do you realize that, you know, a Kindle like four five, six years ago? Like the best Kindle was like really expensive and maybe only the rich people could afford it. Now it's kind of like if your parents get you that Kindle, it's like, you know, $50. You're like upset and bored and offended because there's like a a better one with bells and whistles. That's what innovation does. But you can't have that without competition. Am I making sense? Dude, you're not only making sense, you're, you're, it's like an intellectual storm is going through the room here. Like, I don't ever want to be on the other side of a debate with you. My God, you're, you're oh, a man, force probably, of nature. You got a lot of energy in your mind. It's great. Oh, man. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of people might be listening to this, but like, I can't believe he said that. How dare he hates the poor? <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you, you don't. You know, the... the Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's clear you don't, that you don't hate anybody. You're you're trying to help and, and you've got some really good ideas for it. I'd love to put you in touch with my sister, man. Where where do you live? I live, well, I've lived in Los Angeles for the past 10 years, oh, okay. but but just under two years ago, my wife and I, we moved us to South Carolina. So that's where I'm, that's where I am now. Uh, all right. All right. Yeah. My sister has a nonprofit in LA where she um, works with kids who are aging out of the foster care system. And uh, one of the things she does is is she has programs to help them with job interviews and, you know, just like how to. they're 18 years old and they're getting kicked out. They're like, hey, on your own, you're 18. Happy fucking birthday. You know, it's it's uh, unbelievable, the system. So she's got this um, program set up where she tries to help 
kids get on their feet and, and, you know, get into adult life. And uh, economic literacy is one of the things that she's really interested in and, and sees the need, as you do. Um, yeah, I, I had her on the podcast recently. It was really interesting talking to my little sister as just like a woman, yeah. you know. So yeah. it's, it's a weird experience. It's uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I love it. Anyway, listen, man, I've I've taken an hour of your time and uh I really appreciate it. I'd love to do this again, maybe in person sometime. The the remote thing for me, I didn't do yeah. any remote interviews until this, you know, COVID thing came up. Um and it's still hard to to engage. I feel a little bit uh apologetic. So uh I hope we can do this in person sometime. I'd really like to to be in a room with you. Oh, it's it's all good, man. Um you know, we're, we're using the tools of our time to do whatever it is we can. But definitely when you, you know, when, when, when we get through this quarantine or economic lockdown, um, I, I, I love to, to kick it with you. You're, you're in L.A.? I'm all over the place. I, I gave up my apartment because uh, I have this van. Nice. Yeah, I have this van and I spend the summers in the van just cruising around the Rocky Mountains and, you know, wherever. I've done it four years now. And uh, last year I was in it for five months and I got back and I was like, so why am I paying all this rent money to like have an apartment in L.A. where I leave my clothes and some books? And like, yep. so I put my stuff in storage and I'm just like, all right, summer's in the van and uh, winter's in somewhere warm, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so so I don't have a home. I don't have a home right now. I'm just I'm a nomadic. Yeah, you know, well, L.A. is an expensive place to have an apartment. I, I describe L.A. as a place where you got to be twice as rich to live half as nice. Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't make sense economically. I've always been, you know, I've lived all over the world and um, I just backpacked from the time I was 20 till I was 30 something. And I, I learned very quickly that, you know, $100 goes a lot further in some places than it does in others. So <laughs> go to the, you know, go to someplace like New York or Alaska, make your money and then go to Thailand and India and spend it. That's, <laughs> that's my economic <laughs> philosophy. Hey, where, so tell, tell people where they can learn more about you and, and see some of your, I see you have some talks up on, on, uh, your website. Yeah. So, um, my, my one-stop shop where you can get all of my links. You can you can see my About Me page and get my story. You can access all my videos, subscribe to my, my newsletter, which is bi-weekly. Just go to fee.org slash rev1. That is F as in Frank, E as in everybody, E as in elephant, dot org slash rev, R-E-V, one, the number one. Okay. So, um, yeah, find me there. Cool. And tkcoleman.com. Uh, I saw a bunch of stuff up there as well. Yep, that's that's my website. Hey, can I recommend? Let, let me Please. recommend one book. Please let me recommend one book as many for, as you for want. anybody. Yeah, for anybody that might be intrigued by you know the things I said about the power of free markets. Free markets are something that are that's a perspective that isn't brought up very often by the people that are are leading the conversation on things like social justice or helping the poor or you know things along those lines. Uh, partially because, you know, certain people tend to be more interested in that rhetoric, rhetoric for different reasons. But also, you know, I, I think in a lot of cultures where people are capitalists, they just kind of um, j- just don't think about the people side of it sometimes. A lot of capitalists just love ideas so much we don't think about the people side of it. So if you're at least intrigued and you're open minded, 
I'll, I'll recommend one book to, to dive into. It's a book by David Friedman, who is the son of the famed economist Milton Friedman, and it's called The Machinery of Freedom. The Machinery of Freedom, David Friedman. And it's it's a book where he, it's it's kind of a speculative approach, but he takes all the different facets of society from policing to education to healthcare, and he paints a picture of what a society could look like if we allowed voluntary exchange rather than central planning and, and government coercion to be the dominant force for, for how we sorted out a lot of so how we sort out a lot of the challenges that we deal with today. And, and I think it's an interesting picture. And at the very least, it'll open you up to a different perspective on how to think about some of these problems. All right. Thank you. Machinery of freedom. I'll check it out. Thanks, man. Really you. good talking with you. Hey, likewise. Cheers. OK, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got Beer Cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You want to shut it up but give it a rest You're going to die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Go down 
We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.